Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and Mayu. I'm joking. Mayu's here with us today. <laughs> it's been a solid two weeks, man. Sorry, guys. I've been uh, busy. We're moving out to, we're moved into Pickering now and a great, nice life out here. Uh, it's a little bit different, but Austin, man, I hear you missed me on the podcast in the preamble. Um, my wife tells me you didn't sound as happy as you normally do. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, <laughs> a nice vacation from you as well. <laughs> we What's been going on, man, Austin? What are, what are you been up to? Um, yeah, what have, been, what have I been up to? That's a good question. So if you guys are on our email list on Terry Property Deals, you probably saw that email that I shot out. It was yeah. kind of a clickbait title. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> like the only reason why I had to make a clickbait is because no one would click it otherwise. For those who don't know, basically sent in an email saying goodbye, Austin, brackets kind of, and welcome Peter. And it was just an email explaining that I would be not leaving Ontario property deals, but taking a step back from the dispo side and having our new dispo manager take that on full time. Some people didn't read through the email completely and still called me on the phone and said, awesome, what's happening, man? Like, are you starting a new business? Like, what's going on, man? I'm so sorry to see you leave. I was like, oh, dude, like, you, you didn't read through the email, man. It was clickbait. It worked pretty well. Um, we had a lot of love for Peter. There's been a lot of text messages and emails welcoming him. So very excited about that. You probably hear my dog in the background freaking out. Um, what else has been going on on my side? Got an appraisal. I think I mentioned that in the previous podcast um, for our six unit appraisal. Six, I mean, sorry, nine twenty five. We're getting an appraisal on our eight unit right now. All five of the units are almost done renovations. And lastly, with our joint one of our joint venture partners, um, we bought that ten acre land triplex. I guess it was two, like two units, and then a separate single family on that lot. Um, so the tenant left early in the back unit when we got cash for keys, they left a month early, which is a huge bonus. So yeah, I mean, right before appraisal, we are going to finish that unit up. There should be like 10 or 15 K and then refi it. And obviously we know what prices did. So hopefully there'd be a good refi. Um, but that's pretty much, I think that's everything on my end working on taxes still, but other than <laughs> that, that's about it. Yeah. Um, Damn, man, that's a lot of different projects going on there. You forgot we've got ranking going on as well. Um, that okay. one's done. That one should be good and nice and juicy to refinance as well, right? Um, but yeah, a bunch of, I guess, uh, on my end, last two weeks, uh, a lot of time went into moving, man. I couldn't freaking believe how long this shit would take, um, but it took up a lot of my time staying on top of things, onboarding a new member on the mortgage side. Uh, we are wrapping up and almost done with our Prince Edward County flip. Um, hopefully should be less said within the next couple of weeks. Like there's still about like two weeks of rentals up. And then there's a small, small shit staging setup that'll happen before it gets listed. But um, we're getting there. That one should be a decent profit. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, finally, it seems like we've got a lender on this resort deal. Uh, nice. A lot more complicated than I thought it would be to get financing on this. Like it was actually like a pretty solid like nightmare going around through multiple like 
The thing is with private lenders, like a lot of them will say, hey, like we do this, like blah, blah, blah. And then it comes down to, okay, give me the commitment. Like, let me see this in writing, blah, blah, blah. And even once you have it in writing, there's so many stories out there of like private lenders just changing terms, like deciding, you know what, we won't fund this right before closing, um, stuff like that. But now we think we found like a legit individual um, who's just, or not individual, it's part of like a mic, but um, they're well-funded. So it seems like they, they're going to be doing this no problem. We're going to be capitalizing. Actually, you know what, I'll say this for next week once we actually have it in writing tomorrow. <laughs> Just in case you never know, right? But either way, that one sounds like it's going to be going good. You and I have actually sold off a couple of properties that we own together. Um, the set of three towns that we first put up for sale, I think like sometime last year around this time, is finally getting to the closing stages. We've sold off the duplex and triplex. Our refinance on our sevenplex in New Brunswick is should be done probably sometime in the next week or two, right? And then we've got the eightplex in New Brunswick that we need to refinance as well. I had a freaking roof cave in on my, uh, I think, I, I don't know if I told you this before or not, but on my, uh, yeah, the nine unit, right? The, the, the nine unit. So we're waiting for quotes on that to see what that comes in at. There's just a lot of shit going on, but I think, um, more interestingly, I think it's just kind of these rumors and, and turmoil and all these different things that's going on in the market. Obviously interest rate went up a little bit. Um, we're in a potential freaking wartime economy. Like <laughs> I know we're not actually in war, right? But it's just like, there's so much uncertainty in the market. That's really interesting to kind of just see how everyone's taking it and dealing with it and just moving forward. Um, and I know you and I talked about these potential rumors on this 35% down payment, but I mean, who the heck really knows, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know how true that's going to be. It's, it's a little does, bit sweet. It's true. When, but yeah, that's it. Like, <laughs> that's going to be point. Yeah, me and Austin yesterday, we, we were basically just like, yeah, like if this 35% thing goes through, like, all right, I, I don't know what I don't know what the impact is on wholesaling. I'm gonna assume it's gonna be pretty drastic. Mortgage business will basically just slow down. And we were like, well, it was a good go. We'll just go back to our corporate lives. <laughs> the majority of investor clients. So yeah, it's gonna yeah. Oh man, it'll be brutal. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, there's a rumor going around that there uh I think there's gonna start being 35% down payment requirement minimum for investment properties. And the second rule is, is that you cannot use HELOCs anymore to fund down payments for investment properties. Um, and if that's the case, goodbye Burr strategy. Again, it's just the rumor. We don't know how true it is. Yeah. I think we've heard some slight variation of this for a while anyways, but it just never came to fruition. So who knows, it just could be talk and never it never pans out. Yeah. And ultimately the other side of it is 2018, when they brought up the stress test, everyone thought that was super detrimental. Look where we are today. There, there will be a period of cooling off, a period of fear, a period to take action if you guys have the, the guts for it, essentially. Right. Um, but usually people will find out solutions to kind of get around this kind of stuff. Right. So we'll see what happens. But either way, I, guys, I think uh, this episode, who do we have on today, Austin? We have Andrew Hines on today. Andrew Hines. I don't even think I need to make an intro. You guys should know him more than you should know us. Uh, but for those who don't know, he is a phenomenal podcast host, real estate investor, started off investing in student rentals, um, then project managing development plays, and is now doing a development down in Florida and investing in the US. If you guys haven't checked out Andrew Hines' podcast, what are you doing? Uh, I think <laughs> it is the best real estate Canadian podcast show. Ours is pretty good, but definitely Andrew Hines has been one of those podcasts that I've benefited from tremendously. My you, I know you as well, yeah. throughout our entire real estate journey. Not going to go too long for this intro. This is going to be a phenomenal episode, as you guys probably expect. And we will jump right in now. 
Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest. Took a while to get him on here, but we finally made it happen. This should have been in our first year of our podcast, but we have Mr. Andrew Hines. Andrew, how's everything going, man? It's going good. Thanks for having me. Are you sure, Andrew? So I think myself and Austin um, know quite a bit about you. Andrew also has a very successful podcast, um, The Andrew Hines Show. Yeah, right. yeah, the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast, but okay. you can just call it the Andrew Hines Podcast or whatever. <laughs> For our listeners that might not know you, Andrew, um, I, and we know you're doing completely different stuff today, but why don't you just give us a quick background on how you got started in real estate and kind of what your uh, what that journey's been like for you? Yeah, so just the inspiration came from when I was young. My parents, you know, kind of didn't really have um, all that much to work with, and and you know, my my one my my uh, father he worked as a teacher. My my mother had uh, you know her own self employed businesses. But it was always the same challenge, you know, five kids and, you know, making ends meet and what we have a budget for. So I just kind of decided I wanted to do things different, didn't know how, go to university. I start seeing the landlords renting out these rooms at 500 a, a piece. There was one particular property on the corner uh, in front of the Western Gates, ran the numbers. I figured my landlord was making like 130,000 a year plus more than my parents and just for owning property. And it was at that moment, I'm like, okay, gonna do this. And, um, it took me a couple more years to graduate. And I, I worked in teaching for two years at Western. And then as soon as I went out from that contract, I, I um, started dating my now wife and her mom just so happened to be a very successful real estate investor. So I went and worked for her and learned and started buying some single families, ran out of money, dipped my foot into uh, development, got lambasted and failed. And, you know, just pretty big tragedy there. We won't get into the details because uh, I know we're, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. But uh, then I invested in the States, also didn't go great, lost a bit of money. So my start was just nothing but, you know, kind of skidding my knee, getting back up. Things didn't really click until I started investing in student rentals and doing um, renos where I was adding additions and making high-end student rentals, like ensuite bathrooms in every single bedroom. I was one of the earlier ones to start doing that a lot. Um, now that's very common to find in London. But at the time I was like, you know, kind of in new space doing that and really pushing rents, uh, pushed up my net worth a lot by doing that recently got out of the student rental um, game and I've redeployed that cash into the States and into a trailer park that I recently purchased. So I still have a couple of properties in London, but not what I did before. And I'm just really looking to build south of the border. And then of course, in, in uh, hospitality here in uh, Canada. So wow. much done. <laughs> so I actually thought you got started with the Ohio stuff. I, I didn't know you were already investing before that. Yeah. Like Ohio was like a knee jerk reaction to having run out of money more or less in Canada, in Ohio, I could buy properties for like 15 grand, you know, be in, I had one that was operational 16 grand buying the house and doing a little bit of a reno. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know what, down there in the States, like the seller pays the bulk of the closing costs. So when I sold the place between realtor fees and well, at least in Ohio, anyway, uh, by the time I was done, when I sold that place three years, four years later, I think I cleared half of what I had invested into it. Fortunately, there was cash flow in, in the interim, but Ohio was just a disaster for me. And uh, hey, it was a good education. <laughs> and that's when you repivoted back into London, Ontario. So I know at the beginning of the journey, um, you had kind of hiccups. Why did you settle down on the student rental model? Was it your previous landlord that kind of got you into that? And I know that you bought some fresh new ideas into the student rental games, like on suite bathrooms. Like, could you walk me through how that process was like and some key tips for student rental investors to maximize cash flow? Yeah, I don't. I don't claim to uh, to be the genius behind it all. I, I think that it was an idea that was given to me, and I ran with it. Uh, I, I was aware of it. It was happening a little bit, but it wasn't that common. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I know the money that comes to this school. 
I think it makes way more sense to push that because even if it didn't get me more rent, whose place is going to rent first? The guy who has ensuite bathrooms or the one who doesn't. So when I got kind of the wind knocked out of me in Ohio, it was like that happened at the same time as the London thing, where it was a development went bad. Uh, ended up having to hang on to the place for the investor for like four years, you know, making nothing and just grinding it out to get rid of it until the market finally came up that I could sell it and get his money back out. Um, so that sucked. So I was just down and out. And then I finally decided uh, by watching my friend who was just crushing $100,000 flips after one after another by doing student rental renos and then selling it to investors out of Toronto because to them, London prices look small. So I started to see a little bit of an arbitrage scenario you know, really focusing on people in London aren't willing to pay this, but professionals will pay for a turnkey rental. So it started with, yes, I want to own these, but worst case I can sell them. And uh, eventually I, I formed a company to sell them, but I was also, you know, my primary goal was always let's own them. Let's burr them before burr was a thing before that was a term that people were, were really saying. And that was where I saw like my life start to change. Like as soon as I did the first one, I ended up having to sell it because I couldn't qualify. And I just saw the big paycheck that came out of that. I'm like, okay, I will never do things the way I used to do them. Real estate is the way. And you know, whether that's selling, I didn't want to sell, but you know, me not wanting to sell, and I didn't even mention this before is why I got into actually building for other people. And I started doing some general contracting, building townhouses, building a little bit of, you know, spec homes, but uh, primarily doing larger scale developments. Um, And again, never saw myself there. It wasn't something that I was planning. It just, you know, when you're in motion, it's funny how things just keep happening. When you were going through these student rentals, I'm going to assume there weren't that many comps of student rentals with, I don't know, six bedrooms and six bathrooms or no. something like that, that were like luxury finishes. So like, like, how did you go about deciding, Hey, like I'm going to be able to pull out X amount of capital. Cause those are also now expensive renovations, which, you know, just assuming since Ohio had just happened and the time right. you went, there was low capital. How do you go about financing? And then you can't really determine yeah. it as well. I'm just trying to sound well, the mindset. So the nice, the nice thing about, you know, knowing Carlo, who is a good friend of mine and still is, um, he was the trailblazer per se. And, you know, kind of a guy with no fear, uh, a guy that just decides what he's going to do and does it. And so he had a lot, we would always share stories and talk to each other. So we were always bouncing things off uh, of each other. So I had a good feeling and I knew that there was a a competitor, you know, you can call it doing these. And occasionally he would do one with five bed, five bath, but he wasn't doing it all the time, just every once in a while, but he didn't do nice finishes. We both kind of looked at it and we felt like there's, there's an opportunity here to, to really go nice, you know, courts and everything really nice finishes, stage the place and just go that extra mile, make it. So it's actually the best property. And I just knew having gone to Western, the type of people that come there and the type of money that's there. And I'm like, well, if they'll pay, cause there's this Lux apartment building that people were charging like 900 bucks for, you know, a, a room in an apartment building. And then you have to share a bathroom. I'm like, well, what if they could pay me 600, 700 and have their own bathroom? Why wouldn't they take that? Plus they got a backyard. So it was a lot of just, you know, sometimes you have to operate with a little bit of faith, but I had enough, um, you know, examples that I could kind of use some, some deductive reasoning to assume that yes, people are going to pay for this. And I had a very good feeling about that. And yeah, it it really caught on. And so I kind of started pushing that more. And then Carlo actually went full, you know, full send on that, that model. And now everything he does is that way. Well, I shouldn't say everything. He does a lot of stuff, but you know, when he's doing them, it's almost always ensuite bathrooms and everyone, because you can just get so much more rent when you have that there. So huge opportunity at the time, harder now is like, 
you know, junk in those areas is now selling, you know, when you're trying to buy this stuff, you're paying six, $700,000 for inventory uh, that you're going to then renovate. And it's really hard to push those numbers. So you asked about getting the appraisals or knowing we had some good contacts and we knew that they looked at uh, real estate investing uh, in investments more based on the income they could generate than comparing it to other sales. So, you know, we, we knew appraisers that, that knew that there was an appetite from Toronto buyers to pay more for a fully renovated asset that generated more income and was relatively turnkey. Like this place is always going to be rented because it's better product. Um, so it really comes down to having a team and knowing that the person appraising your property is somebody who, who gets the difference. They don't just come into it. Is there a standard residential appraiser? And they say, well, I just appraised a bungalow down the road for 300 or 250. How mm-hmm. can yours be worth 600? They can't do that math in their head. Whereas you get the right appraiser that says, oh yeah, I know X, Y, Z comparables. And they all went for a similar ballpark. Okay. Those will be my comps. So we, and we were often having to get the appraiser to pull up off market comps. So they, it would just be other properties that this appraiser had appraised because he had sales. Like there were sales that he was appraising for. Oh, this property sold 430 and number jumped to 499 and then 530 and then six, 600. And, you know, it just kept going up and it still does. I mean, I can only imagine some of the numbers. I haven't really been following it too closely lately, but even since I sold the bulk of my properties, you know, properties in London have gone up probably 200 grand on average, like it's in like six to eight months. So now is just unprecedented. Now, now I don't even take any stock in what's happening. It's just like the combination of a very slow currency collapse and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So just to get a better understanding, like when you were doing all of these renovations, are you refinancing? You're not refinancing with a lender. Is that right? Because like, Oh yeah. Yeah, actually it was. Yeah. So I would go in typically. So, so on the front end, I think that I might've missed your question. So let's, let's jump back front end. I would go early on private mortgage. So private first mortgage, private second mortgage. Sometimes I, I generally tried to avoid that. Uh, I'd find other ways of coming up with, you know, uh, investors I knew uh, where I could get a, a loan that maybe was unsecured uh, for the, for the construction money. Cause I really don't like dealing with institutions for the inspections. You have to take photos or they want to send out their inspector to make sure you're at stage, you know, your foundations in, or, or in the case of a reno, you're closed in your windows are in whatever. So it's better to get that kind of funding. But yeah, at first I just did full private mortgages. So I had another house that the mortgage was secured on. So my financing was between the, the house I bought to renovate and another one I owned blanket mortgage on both of them. I didn't put in a, do- a dollar. Like I, I, I paid for things on my credit card and then I just got the money back from the lender. So that was the start. Eventually my, uh, my business partner and I, we started doing them together to like flip them. We formed a company and uh, yeah, it was all just private money. Um, people we knew uh, they would lend us money and, and we'd pay them a return and, and we grew our business very organically that way. And the, as you guys probably know, the more you're in this business, the more people want to give you money. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, okay. So I was just curious because a lot of a lender banks, they won't typically finance your student rental, right? Yeah. That's on the back end. So, so for the burrs, again, you got to know who who you're dealing with. Uh, If the appraiser goes in there and says, there's keys on all the doors, this is a student rental. And they put student rental in the actual appraisal. Yeah. Your deal is going to get shot down. But if you are working with an appraiser that knows how to appraise a student rental and get it through with a bank, that doesn't happen. So it all comes down to who are you working with? And this is why you know, when you're recommending a realtor to somebody, you say, you know, don't go with your, your family friend, go with the guy who just got 10 deals done exactly like what you want to do. Um, and that advice is it works in any industry. You go find the, find the one who's getting it done now and work with exactly. them. That's the easiest way to, to get these things done. So yeah, CIBC, I used to be able to get them done 80%, um, 30 year am best in market rate. 
Um, then they changed. And when the stress test came in, it now became way more difficult to qualify for their income requirements for, you know, especially with the, um, so, you know, with the way the values were going up and the way we were pushing the values, it just couldn't get it anymore. So it was more like 65%, which is a lot less attractive as an investor to be in, you know, 35% equity. Of course, nowadays with things going up so much, it doesn't even matter, but, uh, yeah, that kind of took the wind out of the sales a bit. I also had some success with RBC, similar loan to value, um, not because they restrict it, but what happens is they have a debt coverage ratio. And if your rents aren't enough to push you up and get the full 80%, they just scale your loan back until your ratio works. So uh, 60, 65% was common. Um, nowadays you can go with credit unions. Um, my friend does a lot of that, uh, a lot of credit union, uh, and you're not getting best rates. Like you're getting like threes to fours, 25 year ends. So you really need to be pushing the cash flow on those rentals. And uh, doing high end can help, but being creative is most important. Like just doing it different, finding a way to make your product stand out uh, where you can actually create demand for your product, create like bidding wars for your product. Like that was a new concept for me to learn. Like, and I've done that. And uh, I know I learned from the master, you know, Carlo, I have had him on my podcast twice uh, for anyone who wants to check that out. Um, But yeah, he taught me the the strategy, hold an open house, hold offers for your, for your rents. Mm. <laughs> who does that? You know, and I know there's some people who don't like that and that's great. You know, everyone has their own style and I, I can't do it exactly like he does it. And we all have to do it in a way that that works for us. Of course. I'm sure yours were a little bit more challenging because I think it's harder to justify a, I guess, I think London has a cap at five bedrooms, right? Is it five or six? I don't, I don't remember. For It's five. It's five for anything new. If you had something that predated that bylaw, then you could be as many as you had. So it, you just had to prove it and or have an ongoing rental license, uh, some sort of evidence that you had more than five bedroom. So I guess it's harder to, to claim a five bedroom, five washroom house as a family rental. With the way prices are going in London right now, especially anything near the university, like you're probably not cash flowing on five bedrooms now or like with student rentals, right? You need the, the rents didn't really change significantly on the higher end. You might get seven, seven fifty with the super luxurious product, but mm-hmm. your purchase price has like double, triple in some cases, yeah. right? If you're treating your house like a commodity and when you're buying it, like a student rental as a commodity, you know, I'm close to the university, but it's commodity pricing. What are you paying per bedroom? Then yeah, you're not going to do so well anymore. Now it's going to be tough. Like it's not to say it couldn't be a great, great investment. But again, and to me, like that game requires that you position yourself as different to be successful in it. Otherwise, you know, you can have old investors that just have a whole bunch of money and they come in with big down payments. But if you want to work a burr game where you're going to refinance and get your money up, it's definitely still doable, but it's harder these days. Uh, so yeah, getting your rents, getting your cash flow, it's going to be challenging. Got to get creative. I kind of enjoyed that though. Like I got to I got to really go all out on the house, you know, give it like a waterfall countertop when no one else had that, where, you know, the quartz goes down to the ground and, you know, run the quartz up the wall, nice stainless steel appliances do more than their friends would do, or their friends would have. And now everybody talks about your house, your friends know. So that one house, the nicest one I ever did, I sold it and it got a good offer or whatever. I got 860 a bedroom. I'm not going to give the exact number, but it just re-rented three years later for over a thousand a bedroom. Holy shit. <laughs> and that's London. That's not common in London. Yeah. So. That's crazy. I don't want to make this an entire student rental podcast. So I yeah. think we'll, we'll move forward. Just last yeah. comment here on that. I'm speaking sure. about being unique. I totally agree with you. I know other student rental landlords who offer things like um, maid services to come clean up every two weeks, sure. uh, Netflix, like luxurious, luxurious amenities. Um, but I want to kind of get into your introduction to the development space. Now, for those who don't know, I believe you went to Ivy and you graduated finance degree. So that 
has nothing to do with the construction side of things, right? Where did you get your footing in construction? Because for a lot of people not into that realm, it's challenging. Um, I still don't understand everything about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think your attitude, you know, is the most important part. You know, I graduated Ivy and I knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I didn't know what it was going to be. And why not development? Why not construction? You know, that's the way I look at it. I think your attitude matters more than anything. And if you are willing to learn and willing to do whatever it takes to be successful, it doesn't much matter which business you get into. And, you know, I, I had read all the books, I, you know, Napoleon Hill and, and stuff. And I knew if I put my mind to it, I could. But I also knew that I could rely on people I knew. There's always somebody out there that can answer a question if I have it. And I might look a little bit novice to start, but I'll figure it out. And it was baptism by fire. My first rental, I didn't hire a general contractor. I built an addition, you know, tore the place apart. And these are not type of things you do on your first renovation. And uh, I did it anyway, because I paid too much for the property to be able to afford to hire a GC. I would have lost money. So I slept in the apartment or in the house when it was under construction. I showed up every day, slept in my car sometimes, did a lot of the work myself. Only the work that you know I was qualified to do, which was basically like painting and nailing on some trim. Through that process, I learned the lingo. I learned the parts of the construction. I met good people. And then I really started leaning on my good people. I met, I met who later became my site supervisor and my primary like main full-time employee. Um, you know, he was a fantastic carpenter. He taught me, you know, really kind man. He taught me so much about the business, you know, and, and I, he simplified things for me and he gave me confidence because I understood what he could do, what he couldn't do. And now, it, you know, it's like an empowering feeling. I started looking at properties and said, yeah, he could do that. Oh yeah, we could do that. And uh, so I really, the, the team is what gave me the confidence and I wouldn't have built the team unless I had dove in. And, you know, that's this giant feeling of unknown. But at the time for me, it was like, I wasn't really too keen on continuing in the mortgage business the way I was doing it. Not to say that there wasn't a way to make that work, but I didn't really like the way I was doing it. I had just gone back to teach another year, 2014 to 15. That contract end, ended and I'm like, I want to do something fun with my life. Like I want to enjoy what I do. And real estate seems so interesting. I went all in on it and I just wanted to find a way and um, I was determined to do that. So that's why, that's why I learned. And within one year of starting that, I was already building townhouses, brand new construction, which, I mean, it's crazy how time goes, goes so fast, but, and that was another challenge way over my head, which is exactly what I said when Carmen asked me to do it. She, she had a builder that was doing it. It was going a bit slow. She's like, do you want to build 20 more, you know, finish the second phase of this project? I'm like, well, I've never done something like that, but you know what? I got the team. I have the confidence in the people I know that we can put this together. And I worked my ass off to get ready to do that. Um, and I made a bunch of money for doing it. And I learned so much for doing it. Got to learn a little bit more about the development process. Uh, of course, I obviously dabbled into it in 2012, um, 2013. But, uh, you know, just little gold nuggets, little bits and bites along the way, picking things up constantly. And then finally, um, you know, ending in this role and all these things have built for me. And, and still to now, I take this, this confidence in construction. And that's why I feel comfortable, you know, engaging in this business in Florida. I've been burned enough. I know what to look out for. I'm not saying I'm perfect and I won't make another mistake, but I'll make a lot less of them. And I, you know, at least in terms of the same mistakes. So before we get into what you're doing today, uh, so you're doing mm -hmm. development exclusively for other people, or are you doing your own developments from scratch? How's that side of your business look like? So as far as the development side, like I'm really just involved in the construction portion and then the certifications. So the development process, like you get your site plan approval, but then you actually need to complete and you know you have final registrations you have like engineers come out and certify the work so that's more the part that i've been involved in 
so there's spillover from the, you know, the early development stage to, you know, the actual completion of the project. So that's primarily the part I've been doing. And that is, uh, for other people, uh, to date. So I've never done one of my own projects and people who have talked, well, except for the one that failed, <laughs> but people who have talked, uh, you know, to me and, and, you know, kind of know my story is like, I want to, I want to find opportunities to develop where even if I can't develop, it's still a great project. I don't need the development to work for it to be a great investment. So I'll, if you listen to my podcast, you, you know, you probably heard me say that, Hey, if you can find a property with a bunch of extra land and then develop it, I just had a guy on my podcast, talk about that. I believe it was Corey Frock. Uh, he has a, a commercial fourplex in St. Catharines and he's working on an approval for 16 townhouses in his backyard. Those are the type of projects that I like. And that's the type I'm, I'm on the lookout for, but I'm not super actively looking for that because I'm profitable in the business I'm doing right now. Uh, but I'm certainly open to that in the future. And I think it's a huge opportunity. You did a lot of things, Andrew. Like, yeah, like, I've done a lot of stuff. Man. <laughs> I was about to try and summarize it. I'm like, oh, I don't even know where to start. So you went from Ohio to student rentals to uh, you're not doing development for other people. And that business is still going on. But I think as of right now, my understanding is you've got the resort in... I don't, yeah, uh, just south of Tobermory. Okay. And then you've also got something going on in Florida. So let's, let's talk about yeah. the resort first because... Uh, selfish interest. We're looking at something similar and I would love to learn yeah. from you. So, um, okay. so tell us a little bit about the resort. Like what did that look like? Um, numbers wise acquisition plan, all that kind of stuff. So the early on numbers actually weren't that great. Like we looked at the the sales numbers in there. So we're, we're about, um, actually I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say it just cause I have other investors. I don't know. I don't want to say the exact number we bought it for, but you know, we bought it in, in between one and 2 million and, um, you know, the numbers weren't nearly enough to service. Like, and, and especially when you, when you look at um, campgrounds, they're hard to finance. You know, it's, it's harder to get say 75% on that. But what we uh, were able to do is we were, we were able to get a very favorable appraisal up front. And um, so we're coming in with a lot of private money, pretty much the, the full, full uh, shebang in terms of what we're paying for the property. And what we're doing is we're doing a um, glamping model where we're going to have a certain portion of the park, which is high end, like Airbnb sort of, I wouldn't call it high end, but it's, it's experience oriented. So, uh, you know, a pretty nice, unique trailer, you might have a wood fired hot tub. Um, you know, you've got an opportunity that you can stay and, you know, you don't have to bring a tent. You can sleep inside your trailer. Um, in, in those type of things, we're thinking we can get a few hundred bucks a night for, uh, in, in the summer. So it, it's an opportunity that we can scale a lot of income in the park. So we have, you know, you, of course you have your standard trailer nights could be 40, 50 bucks a night for somebody to drag their trailer. In, and we'll, we'll continue to allow that. But what we moved away from is the seasonals because the seasonals were paying, you know, roughly $2,000 a year. And that's just really not enough money when we could, you know, rent that out on Airbnb and make that in a couple of weeks. So that was the big change we wanted to come in and do. We sort of calibrated and figured it would take roughly 400 grand in gross sales to basically cover our loan obligations in the first year. So, and so we're basically just over doubling. We're going to have to just over double what the sales were with the previous owner. But I, I really do feel that that's reasonable with the model we're taking. Like he even has gazebos that he was renting out to people, but it wasn't on Airbnb. So a lot of what we're doing is just system changes. We're we're automating the booking process for camping. We're automating the booking process for, of course, the Airbnbs. And then we're going to put the different models with really good photos on, clean the place up, put in some money. But basically the idea here is go in year one, we're burning big money every single month. And uh, we know we need to have a good first year to show the bank when we go back and refinance. And that's, that's everything. So even if we lose money in year one, not a big deal because we're, we're proving the model. And once the model is proven, we can go back, get the refinance, 
hopefully be in a position where we're still, you know, very little money. in. you know, we do have some money in because obviously we have to buy trailers and, you know, put tents on the site and run it. And of course, all that stuff. But uh, hopefully, yeah, like I said, at the end of this, we're going to pull our money out, have a, a very strong cash flowing asset and 90 acres, you know, 90 acres um, with a river running on one side of it, a pond in the middle. Uh, that's something that for me, I just wanted to own some land with everything going on in the world. I think owning land is a great thing. And that was a big part of this. Um, for not only myself, but some of my partners, you know, just wanting to be able to control that kind of an asset. And quite frankly, I'd like to buy more of them. Mm-hmm. So if you're moving things on to like an Airbnb model, like what type of a team, I guess you guys need to run this business. Cause it's obviously going to be, a, I think a lot more active than a real yeah. portfolio. Um, well, are you going Airbnb like, can be going, systems though, right? Like just run it like an Airbnb. So right. are you going full-time employees? Or are you going like subcontracted? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a must, right? So. So they had, I mean, I guess it was just under 200 grand in, in gross sales before. And it was like sort of a husband and wife running the place. And that was not going to work for us. Like we're all busy. So we just hired um, a husband and wife actually <laughs> that uh, have some experience in running uh, campgrounds and trailer parks. And, and they're going to be our eyes and ears on the ground. And this season, uh, they're going to be the ones doing all that for us. So they're going to be doing the turnovers unless it's like a, you know, a busy long weekend. And there's like, you know, and if we get way too many trailers and they can't handle them all at once, we'll bring in extra help, but there'll be a combination of, you know, check-in park management, handling, you know, odds and ends, um, everything that needs to go on in the park and delegating roles. I'm big on that. You know, in my construction business, I have a site supervisor. I lean on him heavily to, to be me. I can't be involved in that on a daily and still think about other things. So it's big for me. I don't, anytime I take on anything new nowadays, it's like, where's the system that's going to do this for me? Or, or who are the people that are going to do this for me? Because it can't be me doing it. Otherwise I'll, my head will pop off. You know, what's quite interesting is, is that this is the, basically the private equity model in, in real estate, right? You're buying a business. Um, and a lot of times with these campgrounds or with cottages, my, you would know, cause it's similar with yours. Um, these older owners don't know how to optimize it they don't take advantage of the digital space. So by just doing a couple of tweaks, you can significantly scale your revenue by doing that. And that's what we saw. You know, it wasn't that he didn't know. I mean, for him, he bought the place for like peanuts compared to what we paid. He didn't need Mm -hmm. to do these things, right? Where we're, you know, the numbers we're paying, we had to change the way it ran. But anyway, we have so many ideas of what we can do. So like to start, we're going to have an Airstream, like an old vintage Airstream on the site with a wood-fired hot tub, deck, fire pit, string lights, all that stuff. We're going to do that with a couple different trailers, but the Airstream will be the, uh, the really cool one. We're going to paint murals of skylines on, on other trailers. So I, I really want to do like an Arizona skyline on one of the trailers. And again, deck, string lights, fire pit, you know, just make it a really cool experience. But down the road, like the sky's the limit, right? Build a treehouse Airbnb, build a floating um, Airbnb on the pond, you know? So it's like... <laughs> you know, a boathouse, basically uh, Airbnb. So there's so much that can be done, but even more simple than that is just, you know, taking like a, um, a basic, one of those like small white tents, putting a bed in it, you know, an area rug, like basically, um, glamping light where it's just tent clamping, but we've got, you know, little led lights inside. They still use the common bathroom, but, uh, they get their own space. They get to sleep in a real bed and still be with nature, still feel like they're camping, but not have to go through all the, uh, the extra steps. And the nice thing with that is we'll get people that wanted a hotel in this area, but there's very limited hotels in this area. You know, accommodations are tough to find. They didn't want to camp, but now all of a sudden they look on Airbnb and they say, Hey, that actually looks pretty cool. Let's go try that out. Mm -hmm. So now we we have people that we're working with a hotel budget paying us for, you know, a tent. 
So there's, there's a lot of things that, that I just see like endless possibilities. That's one of the things I love about it. It just, it just never ends. Like I could just sit here and think of all the ways we can make money with this. So we'll get started, get it, you know, servicing itself. Mm-hmm. And then we don't ever stop. We just keep finding new ways to, to monetize it, add more value to, to the people who are coming and, um, you know, hopefully keep everybody happy in the, in the process, you know, scale responsibly, don't go over the top or anything, but really excited about the possibilities. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess because you're going the route of trailers, you don't really have a problem of needing to connect to the well or the septic tanks or anything like that. I'm, I'm assuming, right? Like that's how trailers well, work. Like they've got their own kind of they do. things. They <laughs> do. They do. So we have the like, transient sites that are just serviced with water and electrical, but they don't have sewage. So for those people, we do have one main point where they can drive over and dump their sewage into. But the seasonal sites, this was a big reason. Another reason why we couldn't keep the seasonals is because those sites are serviced. So when we're talking about like the Airstream and the other trailers that are going to be ours that we're bringing onto the site, we can't be pulling those over and pumping them out every, you know, every uh, week. So that was the big reason we needed those lots to actually be our, um, we're, we're calling it our grotto getaway. Uh, because we're right near the grotto um, up there near Tobermory. And uh, that's a, that's like a park within the park. That'll be our Airbnb um, central and uh, the uh, units. And not to say we won't expand outside of that for Airbnb, but that's kind of like the main idea. And, uh, you know, pulling through, you know, a lot of stuff I learned back in business school, a lot of stuff I know just from my time marketing various different businesses I've, I've been in. Um, re- you know, again, really exciting projects, so much to do, mm-hmm. but so many possibilities. I'm interested in hearing the marketing side of this because sometimes with these experience, it's a business ultimately, right? So there needs to be a lot of marketing to get it out there to, I guess, consumers or clients to come and and stay there. Given that it's so experiential based, are you just going to simply put it on Airbnb and hope that people kind of like, you know, tenant it out? Or are you going to have like a marketing campaign to push it out there where people just go, oh my God, let's go here. Right. I no, never we're thought put money here, but right? I want to. <laughs> and, and we're really relying on the network too. Like I know there's some people that we probably mutually know who can handle this kind of marketing. I, I've got a really good uh, skilled web developer designer that, that can do a lot of this for me, but you know, it's going to be more than that. It's going to be AdWords. It's going to be, um, you know, more overt, you know, like actually going into local groups and trying to push it. I know Austin, you're pretty good at getting yourself into publications, you know, so kind of taking that model, we need, we need to find people who are going to help us with that. Like, that's certainly not something that, that I'm going to do, but again, it's, yeah, we need to put our foot down. It's kind of tough right now because we need to get in, get the existing trailers off the site, get some trailer stage, take some photos and then boogie. So it's really like the start of June where we, we can get some really good photos and publish those photos on Airbnb. And, uh, and that really pushed to get our summer booked up so that we can have a really strong first season. So, you know, and second half of June, July, August, and then into September, those are what we're predicting to be our stronger months. And, uh, and then the following year, once it's up and running, now it's going to be a lot easier to hopefully start getting people in the long weekend of May and, uh, and onward. Mm-hmm. You almost don't want the traction right now. <laughs> it's tough. Like, what can I do? I can't really show them pictures yet, but uh, it's coming. And uh, cer- certainly we can start booking up the transient sites. We can start booking up the tent sites. Um, you know, there's still lots we can do, but uh, as far as the Airbnb side of it, it yeah, that's going to take a little bit of time, but I don't mind. Like we want to do it right. And uh, we don't want to rush it and, and, you know, not have it be as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. What type of cap rate are you projecting after everything's done? And like, how do you, how do you manage to come up with the cap rate for something so unique? You know, appraisers are going to have something, right? Anytime you call an uh-huh. AACI appraiser, they're going to tell you, this is the cap rate. <laughs> so 
it's not really me that gets to decide that. I think that he was saying somewhere around a seven, we bought it around a five, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, no one's really getting them for a seven. That's not really happening. It's kind of like with a uh, multifamily apartment buildings. Now you guys know it's no longer cap rates. Now it's just a per door price. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk about cap rates anymore. You always uh, have to give a little bit of the future lift to the current seller and they know exactly what, like they know what they're not doing, right? They know you can mm-hmm. take this thing on Airbnb. You're going to be able to increase revenue X, Y, and Z. So. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think that our, the, the previous seller, he was just kind of done with it. And in, in terms of a key, you know, he had been great for him, but I mean, it was, it was a lot of work and, and uh, this business is a lot of work. So it, yeah. it, it needs the systems. And I don't think he was at the point where he's going to go hire a couple of people to take over something he'd been doing for you know 10 plus years. Whereas we're coming in fresh. We need the people with the experience. We're not experienced at running a, a campground on our own. Like we all have business experience and Airbnb experience, but you know, it takes a team and uh, we're really sticking to that wisdom. Right. And th- these are things you learn once you've, uh, you've been around the block a couple of times. For sure. And so like the Florida stuff, like what's the strategy there? What are you doing out in Florida? Florida is like the most interesting to me. I mean, of course the trailer parks like very interesting, but um, you know, it took time to figure something out in Florida that made sense. That felt good for me. Uh, People who follow me know that I'm very, very analytical about deals I'll do and exit strategies. Like I want to, I want to be able to win in multiple ways so that if plan A doesn't work, plan B will work or plan C will work. And so with Florida, you know, I saw many opportunities, high-end stuff, didn't want to get into flipping high-end because if the market crashes, high-end is the first to suffer. I saw um, cheaper flips, but everyone was buying them up. The margins sucked. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say they sucked, but they weren't to my, uh, to my liking. Uh, so what I, what I, I came to is I, I eventually met a guy who was going to the RIA down there last year when I went down. I spent three months down in Florida from end of January to mid-May uh, 2021. And I just went to the real estate investor association in Fort Myers, which is right near Naples where I was staying, met many people, saw the different strategies people were using. Finally, I heard a guy go on stage and talk about new construction and how he'd partner with somebody and, you know, introduce them to the builder. He'd get the financing I'd put in the first installment. So like 70, 80 grand us. And, um, I said, okay, we're going to do one. I shook his hand. We, you know, saw a property with him and I'm um, like, this makes a lot of sense to me. And over time I sort of got, chummy with the builder. Now I've, I've had a chance to sort of build a relationship. So I'm basically just, you know, I've bought up several lots and I'm just starting to build as many as I can. Uh, I've got two contracts signed and I'm going to get them to tee up their, the other ones as well. It's just a matter for me because I'm working on getting my US visa and I got to talk to the immigration lawyer so I don't shoot myself in the foot because with real estate investors for an investor visa, they don't like leverage. So they want you to go in and buy stuff in cash and you have to have a reason that you would actually need to be down there to run the business. So I have to walk a, a very delicate line. So I'll be talking to him, just kind of confirming exactly what I can do, but I want to start taking out construction mortgages on these properties as I'm building so that I can build, instead of just building one or two, I can now start building like 20. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just see a huge opportunity there with, with the relationship. I've always been the guy that had to do all this stuff. Now I can just hire somebody and they'll do everything for me. Like I've, I've never hired a GC other than, well, no, no, I really have never hired a general contractor. I've always been the general contractor. Um, and I feel a certain level of confidence this one with this one because of the relationship, because I can see the track record. Um, and, and so far so good. I, you know, and, and a big thing for me learning from my past mistakes was connecting with people that were in a community that if anyone did anything, uh, you know, offside word gets out. So no one's going to, you know, take anyone for a ride without suffering the consequences in the community. So in the RIA, 
everybody knows everybody. And that was big for me. I'm, I only want to work with people that were connected to the RIA uh, mm-hmm. because now we, you know, I, and I text with people from then, you know, it was, it was huge foundational uh, work and going to those meetups, you know, they had two a month when I was down there and I pretty well went to all of them, uh, which I would highly recommend for anybody who's kind of thinking about getting into Florida or going any other state or even anywhere in Canada for that matter, go find the, the meetups, although you can't really do it in Canada, but go find them and go network. Mm-hmm. So is your development, you're developing like individual, like single family yeah. houses, single family houses. Yeah. Yeah. And you're um, selling them off or are you going to be keeping them? Well, the first one I'm selling. So part of getting connected with this builder is I'm JVing with the guy. So I'm actually just building that one in cash. We re- reworked it and uh, he's acting as the realtor uh, free of commission and he'll oversee the, uh, the building company and, and be boots on the ground for that first one. And then after that, I'll just be doing it on my own. Um, but the biggest thing for me was getting the introduction to the builder. You know, here's Andrew, he's a credible guy. We're building one together. And uh, it, that was the most important thing it did. It got me in touch with this builder and they don't just take on anybody. Um, they want to work with investors. They want to work with volume. They don't want somebody who's just going to come down and build one or two. Um, you know, so it, it kind of just worked out. And I like the numbers. Honestly, the numbers seem really awesome. And it's one of those things where you just got to manage and mitigate the risk and know, Hey, I've got contingencies. If something were to go wrong, things in Cape Coral right now are like anything under a million. Last time I was talking to the realtor, it was like eight days on market average time. Like it's getting hot, just like it is here. And, uh, it just makes me want to buy a whole bunch more lots and, <laughs> and stockpile them so that I can just keep building. Does that ever concern you with development? Just given, um, development is not as liquid, right? Like it's not like, yeah. I mean, sure. Conversions take like seven, eight months. A cosmetic yeah. rental takes like two, three months. Development maybe takes a year, right? Um, yeah. So I'd say start to finish. This is like a year uh, right yeah. now, but they used to be faster. But so now it's like a month for the the survey, uh, a month for the engineering, two months for the permit right now, and then seven months to build. Do you feel like you're more susceptible then to market volatility or do you feel yeah. like you're insulated because of the price maybe that you're buying it and the deals that you yeah. get? It's not great. And I know you guys are going to ask me about like a big risk I see and and this all factors in and why I, you know what, like my own, you know, criticizing myself here, I've not been nearly as aggressive as I wanted to be in the last couple of years. Like I've been very laxy daisy about it uh, because I didn't like the market. I didn't like the signs, uh, the fundamentals in a lot of ways. And I had to kind of in my own mind, become comfortable with what I would do. And the only solution I can really come up with is if the market crashes, I'm going to cost average my way out of it <laughs> and I'm going to be going and buying a whole bunch of stuff. So if, if Florida crashes, great, I'll buy a whole bunch, you know, whatever I have to do, if I have to start a real estate fund and, uh, and round up a bunch of investors, I will do that and we will buy and we will, we will win because if, if that crashes, everything's crashing, you know, where Ontario's crashing, like who is more likely to crash the, the country that's been going up like unreasonably for five straight years or the one that's been going up unreasonably for two. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I, I like the economics. I love the in-migration to Florida and I mean, yeah, it's, it's primarily been driven by tourism, but, but companies are going to keep coming there because people want to be in Florida. Now, uh, of course, all it takes is, you know, DeSantis to, you know, go run for president and no longer be the governor of Florida. And maybe somebody else gets in there. It's not great, but I'm hoping that doesn't happen right now. It seems like kind of the place everybody wants to be. And uh, Hey, people are never going to get tired of the ocean dolphins, the beach, the sun, uh, maybe in the summer you don't want it, but but you certainly want it uh, the rest of the year. So there's just so many reasons why I think that that's a market that was always going to have some level of demand. And um, yes, I am exposed, but not that much more than than a, a renovation. And yeah, you're right; it's not as liquid. I got to get them to finish, 
but whatever happens happens. And, and we just make sure that we set some cash aside for contingencies. And if, you know, if we need to get out of a position, we get out of a position, always have the opportunity to just stop building midway. I mean, it still has value and we can just wait for the market to recover and continue. So there's, there's many different ways to kind of work my way out of it if I need to. Um, but we can't take risk out of investing. Unfortunately, there's no matter where we invest, there's always that. And uh, that's something I just had to become more at peace with through all this craziness. Cause I don't want to just stop because the world went nuts and because values don't make sense anymore and cap rates don't make sense anymore and cash flow is not there. It was important to me to pick a market that was relatively much cheaper because of my philosophy that water goes to the lowest point. People are going to pick communities that have infrastructure where they can get more for their dollar. So that's why I like Cape Coral out of all of Florida. That's actually a very nice market for that because it's right near the ocean and it's quite cheap relatively. You can still get houses in the 300s, you know, new construction and, you know, just hitting that three to 400 line um, to buy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of number. So, so I'm into stuff, you know, for 450 and it's worth 600. Those are very comfortable numbers for me. And that's pretty high end for Cape Coral, at least, at least if you're not on a canal and you're not on like ocean or you're not on like a main river. Um, so I, I feel very comfortable relative price point. That's a big reason why I wasn't so hot on the student rental game in London anymore. The the numbers just got into a, a place where I felt this asset is too specific. I can't necessarily pivot to families and get this kind of rent, you know, say, say the school goes to online learning primarily and the, the market softens, you know, I, I saw too many ways that I felt a little bit exposed in it. And it's not to say it's bad, but you have to look at your portfolio. How much of that, how much of your portfolio does that type of asset represent? Um, so I feel a lot more comfortable when I can get into housing that the average man or woman can buy, you know, somebody can just come in and they can buy that as a, as a home. They could, uh, rent it out from me and I could be roughly cash, you know, break even, uh, I might be a little bit negative until I get my social security number and I can get a, you know, an A bank mortgage down there. But uh, again, it's all that plan, plan A, B, and C. What would you do if? Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, very thorough answer, actually. I, I guess yeah. we can pivot that into our one of two questions. Yeah. Usually we ask your goal in five years, but let's ask the risk part because you kind of addressed it a bit, but let's get deeper into it. Yeah. What do you foresee being the biggest risk for real estate investors in today's market? And it could be anything, political, um, currency, economic, um, I don't know, like characteristics, personality traits, anything really. The, the, to me, the biggest risk is there used to be some rationale to policy decisions. There used to be like, if inflation rates are this, we raise interest rates. And if inflation rates are low, we will drop interest rates. If GDP isn't growing, we drop, we drop in interest rates. But in the absurdity of 2020 March to now, there is no framework for how decisions are made. Everything is nonsensical. And uh, that's the biggest risk to people is we have people making policy decisions with absolutely no criteria. They, they make them based on emotion or pressure from people who have been, you know, um, really tormented for the last two years by fear mongering media. Um, you know, some people aren't making rational decisions, especially economically. And um, with the printing of money and the way that's happened, our challenge is going to be, can we continue to get supply? If, you know, what if we need shingles or a fridge or what if we need, you know, things that break in our house as these supply chains continue to struggle, you know, is it going to affect our operations as investors? Is it going to affect what we can get? How do we need to pivot and and be able to address that? I I truly do think the people who can, can answer those questions and hold on to as much real estate as, as possible are going to be like elite level wealthy in another 10 years, because most people are getting cut completely out of 
the market to even buy real estate. The middle class won't be able to buy real estate. It'll be only for the upper class, the elite. Uh, I don't like calling them that, but you know what I mean? Uh, the super wealthy. And uh, I've, I called this out long before the first lockdown ever. I called it out. I'm like, what is happening in this world? Because incomes are not going up to match property values. We're, we're slowly working our way towards where no one will be able to own a home. And I used to think, hey, well, we'll just make sure we're on the right side of that. Um, it's just once the lockdown started, that just got put on steroids. So now we're, we're really just trying to manage that risk. Like, do I know whether the market will crash at some point because of some event that was caused by all this un, you know, unrestricted spending, you know, causes a financial collapse of some sort, totally possible. The bubble could burst, but then what, you know, people still need a place to live. They're still going to be renting. If they can't afford to own, they'll rent. Um, can I afford to keep and how will I keep? And so, so and there's risk, obviously, like we said, you can't, can't get away from it, but I, you know, if you want to boil it right down, it's, it's nonsensical policy is our biggest risk. I used to be able to say, well, I don't think rates are going to go up because now I can't say that anymore because nothing makes sense. <laughs> it was so <laughs> funny how they, comfort in that, they chose that. not to increase rates when yeah. everyone basically priced it in and that was yeah. the easiest home run. It was like, no one would have been upset. Not a single people were like, yeah, we expected it. Yeah. But I but called yeah. it. I'm like, there's no way they can like, it doesn't make sense. It's going to, you know, the, the, the cost to the government alone with all that yeah. new debt, you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. Uh, GDP is obviously not in a real way. If you, if you adjust out inflation, GDP is not growing. We are contracting, like the country is suffering economically. Yeah. Um, it's, it doesn't make sense to do that. I know they were saying it because inflation's out. We're, we're in the, that stagflation, you know, territory where we're not growing and we're inflating. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's where you don't want to be. So how do we get ourselves out of this? We were like, you know, if we wanted to make it real simple, get rid of all restrictions, get rid of all the red tape and all industries, let people work, get rid of taxes, just let people work and bring us back out of this. But that's not the way people <laughs> think anymore, apparently in government. So <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Andrew, I think that was a great answer. I think it's uh, very similar to our last guest as well, um, which is uh, very interesting. I think a, a lot of big investors are kind of thinking the same way. The risks are very similar. And I agree a lot with what you're saying about, it's kind of like a, um, like amalgamation of assets, right? Those that have assets are continuing to, take more and more and more assets, nothing wrong with it. Right. I think, yeah. um, very few people have one rental property, right? It's like, if you got, if you got yeah. one, you now somehow have like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, right. It just keeps growing. Right. So now more than ever, how do you get started? You, you pretty much have to know, learn the leverage game, private money, borrowing from other people, like yep. other people's money is like, it used to be important 20 years ago. Now it's like critical. It's like the only yeah, way to make it work for a lot of people. Like yeah. somebody who, who just graduated and they're making $50,000 a year they have no hope of owning a home yeah. unless they get creative. And so I think a lot of people are kind of just like, they've lost their enthusiasm to even try. They'd rather just stay in their parents' basement. And that's not great. You know, we, I'm hoping things can turn around, but this is, this is a big thing that drove me to another market. Cause I just don't see a future in that. I don't, I don't, I, that's not really a, a place I, I really want to grow in. And uh, not to say I don't love Canada and Ontario. I love being here in the summer, but I wouldn't mind not being here in the winter, but uh, <laughs> different conversation. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Andrew. So the next question is just uh, like, wh where do you see yourself five years from now? Um, could be business, personal, whatever you want to talk about there. You know, it's a hard question to answer with the way the world is. Um, you know, certainly on a big parcel of land, my wife and I are just about to uh, to move out to the country. And, you know, that's that's something exciting. But I basically just see myself, you know, being in a position where we we go where we want, when we want, and which has always been my goal. And, you know, we want to spend time in Florida or, or travel to Costa Rica. We'll, we'll be doing that in the winters. And um, I won't be anymore running my businesses. My businesses will have people that, that run them for me. And, 
and um, you know, it'll be sort of money coming in on autopilot, so to speak. And then of course, I, I think the media side of things, like that's something I've been very lax on in terms of pushing the podcast, trying to grow more. Um, so I'm definitely going to keep pushing that and become a larger, you know, a larger brand where, you know, a more iconic name for real estate in Canada. I, I know you guys have already done more than I have and <laughs> made your brand go further than I have. Um, and you know, you came in it after I did and I'm very impressed by you guys and you, you know, you do great stuff. So I just want to keep pushing that and, you know, become that uh, Canadian real estate icon that I was, you know, trajectory to become, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I, I set out to do that. And uh, I think I made some good ground and, and I got work to do. Yeah, Andrew, really appreciate you jumping on, man. You have some ambitious goals and um, I think you're on your way there. I think you probably do have the biggest or if not one of the biggest Canadian real estate podcasts and it's just continuing to grow and scale. I'm sure that as you start investing in the US, you're going to have a ton of US audience start listening to your podcast as well. So mm -hmm. well on your journey there and appreciate everything you've done for the real estate community. I remember when I was commuting back and forth from my nine to five, your podcast would always be there and I'd continue to learn a lot. So um, keep up the great work you do. If people want to listen to your podcast, the link is going to be down below uh, the Andrew Hines real estate podcast, not show. There's yeah, no show any of the platforms, <laughs> just search, just search my name, Andrew yeah. Hines, and you should find me. But if you need to add in real estate, you'll find me for sure. Yeah. yeah. People just call this the rise podcast. It's actually the rise real estate investing podcast. We should just shorten it. <laughs> yeah. I typed in rise real estate. I'm like, Oh, that'll for sure. Find them. There it is. Yeah. 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 So if people want to reach, I know it's a bit harder to connect with you. You have a ton going on, but if people at least want to follow your journey, see what you're mm -hmm. up to, uh, how could they best do so? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously good to follow the podcast because occasionally I'll share about the, about what I'm up to. Um, it comes up in conversation, but uh, Instagram I do, I do my best to, to get back to people who message me. Um, so at the Andrew Hines on Instagram is uh, a place where we can probably connect. Bear with me if I'm a little slow at responding on, on some of them, but uh, yeah, those are probably the best two ways. Awesome. If you guys enjoyed this podcast episode, like subscribe, do whatever you can to support the podcast. It helps bring great guests like Andrew on it. And until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care all.